Help keep Kinks and Beats daily ad-free and receive bonus content early with a contribution of 20 cents per episode. Visit herohabit.com slash shop for more information. Hello and welcome to Kinks and Beats Daily. This is your host, Tony Fry, and we are on episode 163, covering one of my favorite songs of all time by any band, by any artist ever in the history of rock and roll music. So this might be a long one. Um, Like I mentioned on yesterday's episode, uh, I do apologize for the um, lack of updates recently. We are going to get caught up. All all of the back dates that we've missed will get um, podcast episodes released to it. But on June 9th, um, Little Harrison was born. And um, since then, it's been tough to find time to record. In fact, you might hear him... um, uh, in the background of some of some of these episodes as we go, but now we've kind of fallen into our routine and, um, and he's sleeping more. So we're going to get all caught up and, um, have it all scheduled out so that all those past episodes will get released to everybody who has contributed to keep this podcast ad free with your $4 a month. I thank you for continuing to do so. Um, and as a thank you, I'm changing the way we do some of our content. Um, Starting in August, people who contribute the $4 a month are going to get an exclusive episode. And these are usually longer. These are usually, you know, an hour or so long. We're going to do exclusive episodes specifically to these subscribers. And um, I'm not going to release them to the general public until we are all out of episodes. So this is episode 163. We've got a couple thousand songs to talk about. So it's going to be a while. Um, So if you want to hear our album episodes or some special topic episodes within the next five years or so, you're going to want to subscribe. Plus, it helps us out. You know, it's not free to produce these things and to keep them um, active. So it helps us tremendously. So if you would like to um, be a part of that and get the exclusive episodes every month, um, swing by herohabit.com slash shop and then just subscribe to kinks and beats support and you can cancel at any time. So there's no, um, you know, there's no commitment, but it does help us a ton. And, um, and I really appreciate that. So, uh, the first episode, the first exclusive episode we're going to have for August is actually a deep look at the songwriting style of George Harrison and how it differs from other songwriters that we talk about in this podcast, Lennon McCartney, the Davies brothers. Um, and so it's kind of fitting that today we are talking about a George Harrison track in while my guitar gently weeps by the Beatles. This song was released November 22nd, 1968 on the album, the Beatles, which is also known as the white album. And it's one of four Harrison compositions. This song being the penultimate track on side one of the double disc. Rolling Stone, on their list of 500 greatest songs of all time, ranks this as 136, and Guitar World ranked the solo, which was performed by Eric Clapton, at number 42 on its 100 greatest guitar solos ever list. Um, and the song was one of a very few tracks from the White Album Sessions that was written after the band's trip to India. Part of the reason this album is a double disc is because of an abundance of material coming from that trip, and we will know that not only was the material from the White Album um, largely written in India, but a lot of material from 
the Get Back Sessions, Abbey Road, All Things Must Pass, you know, uh, maybe uh, uh, McCartney won a lot of that stuff. At least has some portion of origin to the India trip. Like Jealous Guy from John Lennon's Imagine album um, comes dates back to this, but it was a different song. It was Child of Nature back in these days, and um, uh, Teddy Boy came from these sessions. So, like, there was a lot of material that was written during that trip to India. And this song was actually written after the trip to India. And in, in some interpretations is kind of about India in that, you know, it was kind of disappointing and George got the whole band to go in there and, and they got a lot out of it initially, but eventually would leave kind of disillusioned with the whole thing. Um, and so the lyrics are a bit poetic and cryptic, uh, so it's it can be interpreted several ways, but I think ultimately this, the 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 main point of the song is to George's confusion as to why love hasn't conquered all. Um, you know he's he he is this he has found this deeper spirituality, and he starts. I look at you all, see the love there that's sleeping, like there's this potential there that we haven't tapped into. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's, he's addressing it saying that, you know, this is, this is the answer and we're all just ignoring it. And I don't know why nobody told you how to unfold your love. I don't know how someone controlled you. They bought and sold you. So, you know, it's, like I said, it's kind of cryptic and poetic and, and there are some beautiful lines. I think some of the most beautiful lines were omitted when he's talking about, you know, I sit in the wings uh, I watch from the wings at the play you are staging while my guitar gently weeps as I'm sitting here doing nothing but aging. It's a pretty, pretty line. Um, the first recording of this track came a couple months into the album's process and was the first Harrison track attempted by the band for the White Album. So he had let uh, a lot of Lennon and McCartney songs get worked on um, before he even introduced it. And on July 25th, 1968, the band did several rehearsals of the tune, but the only official take from that day was a simple version with Harrison's vocal, an acoustic guitar, and a bit of harmonium overdub. And this version is the one that you can hear on Anthology 3. And eventually, years and years down the line, after George's death, um, George Martin composed a string arrangement, which was added to this acoustic version for the love soundtrack, the Cirque de Soleil show in Las Vegas. And for my money, it stands as one of the most beautiful Beatles moments ever. It's truly stunning. The just hearing Harrison play it on the acoustic um, with his voice. And, and, you know, even though, I mean, this is probably technically a guide vocal or maybe intended as a demo, his singing on it is really spectacular. Um, but then when you add George Martin's string arrangement that really gives it kind of a Beatles sound, uh, it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. I love that moment um, in the love show and the love soundtrack. It's a highlight. So from that day, you fast forward about three weeks to August 16th and the band completely remake the song, recording 14 takes of a basic rhythm track that includes Ringo on drums, Paul on bass, John on organ, and George on guitar. Uh so that's August 16th. Then you fast forward again, September 3rd, George goes into the studio um, and transferred the previous recording onto 8-track. They actually stole this 8-track. 
So back in those days, Abbey Road had a four track. They go and record at, um, I believe it was Trident Studios, which had eight track recording. And they're like, uh, this is kind of the way to do it. And they find out that in the office of the guy who runs Abbey Road is an eight track recorder. And in those days, they wouldn't let the machinery get used in the recording studios until he had okayed it. But the Beatles being the Beatles, they kind of went in there, um, stole it, brought it down into Abbey Road. And this track is actually the first um, Beatle track that was recorded on 8-track within Abbey Road Studios. They had done some 8-track work elsewhere, but Abbey Road, this is the beginning of their 8-track um, uh, recording history. And if you're counting, I just said the word track. If you're doing a drinking game, every time I said track, um, you need to call an ambulance now because I just said it a lot in that short little description. So anyway, we're at September 3rd. They've stolen the um, 8-track recorder. <laughs> Another drink. And George spends most of the evening by himself attempting to record a backwards guitar solo. Now, the thing with backwards guitar, and he did this on Revolver, um, the thing with the backwards guitar is that you have to orchestrate it backwards. So you figure out what you want the solo to do, and then you have to learn it backwards. And then when they flip, turn the tape upside down to play the, the master track backwards, you have to play the guitar solo forward, but backwards so that when they put the tape back, it's played backwards, but forward. So otherwise you have these lines. If you're just playing along with the backing track without really thinking about it, you end up having lines that musical lines that don't really make sense because your instincts are going to be flipped backwards as well. So to do it right, you need to go in and kind of orchestrate this solo in reverse. So George spends all night working with engineers for hours trying to get this done. And I think it would have been a cool effect. What he wants is um, the solo to sound like a weeping guitar, but he didn't want to achieve this using a wah-wah pedal, um, which I think for the speed of this song, he actually made the right choice. I think a wah-wah pedal works better on the up-tempo songs, but I don't think it's going to have the desired effect that they wanted um, on this slower tune. Ultimately, though, as we know, that solo was never used. So two days later, um, Ringo comes back to the band. He'd walked out for a little bit. And the original takes had been scrapped, and a third remake of this song was begun. And although it was officially marked as take 17, because you'll remember we did 14 takes um, previously, and then they moved it to A-track, that's take 15, and then the guitar solos, that's take 16. So we've got, this is officially marked as take 17. George was adamant that this was a new take one. And these sessions produce what will eventually be the final rhythm track, although John is on lead guitar and Paul is on keyboards. Um, the following night, on a whim, because they were hanging out earlier that day, I guess, Harrison brings Eric Clapton in to record the guitar solo. Clapton uses his Gibson Electric and delivered an uncharacteristic solo for him. This sounds barely in tune and utilizes a vibrato technique that we haven't really heard 
up to this point from Clapton. You know, this does not sound like a cream guitar solo. Uh, honestly, he probably would have used the wah-wah if it was a cream guitar solo. Um, but Harrison gets the weeping sound that he is looking for. This session also added more instruments like Paul's fuzz bass and an organ track um, that may be a little too high in the mix for my taste, but it's there. And the fact that this solo doesn't sound quite like Clapton was fully intentional and at Clapton's request because he wanted it to fit seamlessly into the Beatles sound. And, you know, I love Clapton as a guitar player, but one thing he is not is adaptive. And I've said this many times, George Harrison, my all-time favorite guitar player, is arguably one of the most adaptive uh, guitar players of rock and roll. Because if you're playing a country song, he delivers a country guitar solo. If you're playing a rock song or a blues song, he can adapt. If you know, He can imitate Carl Perkins as well as Chuck Berry, even though those styles are completely different. With Clapton, though, you're always getting Clapton. It's always going to be a blues-based guitar solo. Um, and there's no better example of that is if you watch the uh, the Carl Perkins tribute that they did like in the late 80s, early 90s. It's got Harrison and Clapton and uh, a couple other guys, I forget, playing with Carl Perkins. Um, I think it was Eric Johnson. All the other guys are doing Carl Perkins type solos, but Clapton goes in and does a Clapton solo. So he's great. He's a brilliant guitar player. But his style is not really meant for these types of songs. So he wants it to blend seamlessly into the Beatles sound. So um, on October 14th, during mixing sessions, a flanging effect was added to the guitar track. And Chris Thomas, who worked at Abbey Road, was waggling the oscillators for hours, as he says, to achieve that tone. So with that flanger effect is where you get the strange vibrato. It's where you get the kind of out of tune sounding notes. But it also is really what makes that solo great and so fitting for that song. Um, the final track will be eventually issued as the B-side to Obla D pretty much everywhere except the UK and the US. Uh, it was on the band's Blue album, which was uh, uh, a best of album focusing on songs from 1967 through 70. <clears throat> and Harrison would later write a sequel titled This Guitar Can't Help Keep From Crying, which was released on the Extra Texture album in 1975. Pretty good track. George and Clapton would play the song several times on stage together, first time being um, the concert for Bangladesh, and they would also often duel at the end. So Clapton would usually take the solo in the middle, but then over the refrain, the two of them would duel. And if you go on YouTube and watch the different versions of this song, there's some really good stuff on it. Um, at the concert for Bangladesh, uh, they do the duel and, you know, Clapton is rarely unimpressive when it comes to guitar solos. He is wholly unimpressive on this Bangladesh version and George just smokes him on the guitar solo. They're dueling and George is just ripping him apart. Then you flash forward the uh, 1987 Prince's Trust concert, which has got Ringo on drums again, Elton John on piano, Phil Collins on drums, Jules Holland on piano, uh, Jeff Lynne on guitar. Uh, it's an all-star lineup. Um, they do the dueling. George and Clapton are there again. They do the dueling guitar solos there. And um, 
you know, Her- uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Clapton is cleaned up. He's not wasted out of his mind like he was at, at Bangladesh. But Harrison still holds his own. Like anybody that doesn't think these two guys are equals as far as guitar, um, doesn't really understand guitar work. And I think Harrison's playing at the Princess Trust proves kind of that he probably should have just kept working it and, and played the solo on the album because he really has an understanding for these types of chord progressions, this type of sound, this type of uh, the economy of notes that really makes this more impactful. Um, but it's a great recording. And then they did it live in Japan with Clapton's band. So it got, it got played a lot with Clapton on guitar uh, as well as Harrison. And then, of course, if you go to George Harrison's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, where you've got Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne and Danny Harrison and and an all-star band playing it, and Prince comes out and does a guitar solo that if Guitar World um, magazine thinks that Eric Clapton's um, solo is number 42 out of 100, they have to place Prince's like in the top 10 because his solo on this is amazing unbelievable guitar solo on this track and and i've done this track a few times live or whatever you know just messing around jamming it is a fun one to solo on so i can see why prince got so into it now onto the music um as we've stated many times on this podcast before for both the kinks and the beatles this is a song without a proper chorus the single line while my guitar gently weeps or still my guitar gently weeps is about as close to a chorus as we get and what it basically is is a verse and a bridge with each verse being an a minor and each bridge shifting to a major and the verse which is an a minor also features a descending bass line um that is often represented with some strange chords such as f sharp minor 7 flat 5 <clears throat> which is not quite a diminished seven chord, but close, but it's essentially an A minor chord with an F sharp in the bass. So we've got this. That little descending bass line um, that you hear even in George's demo of it, you know, it's built into the song. But I do think that it's um, it's all over an A minor chord, and that bass stuff is just uh, extensions and what. But what's cool about this song is how George gets us from A minor to A major because he doesn't just hit the five chord. Usually, you would do your you just hit the five chord, and you can go back to A because the five chord is the same. So you can use that to pivot from A minor to E to A major. But what he does is he first goes to the relative major tonic. So we're in A minor. The relative major is C. And then he, um, which doesn't exist in the key of A major, by the way. And then he goes to the five chord, which doesn't exist in the key of C major. Um, And then back to the A. And this creates some pull in several different directions to A major. Because from C to E to A we have a series of notes that move down. So we've got C to B to A. So that's a descending line. And then we have a series of notes that moves up from uh, G 
What am I doing? C, uh, G, uh, where is it? To G sharp, to A. So we've got a descending line and a, a ascending line, and then we've got a series of notes that doesn't change because E is present in all three chords. You've got a C chord, C, E, G, an E chord, E, G sharp, B, and an A chord, A, C sharp, E. So that E, so you've got in the, th each chord has three tones. One chord, one tone is shared between all of them. Um, one set of tones is ascending. One set of tones is descending. So what you end up getting is the... Uh, whoops. And it's a cool way to get to a major you're kind of taking a longer route to get there, but it ends up being more rewarding because you've got that chromatic movement going in two different directions. Um, getting back to A minor, though, he just simply lands on the dominant chord and makes it switch. So there's nothing fancy getting back to A minor. He ends... Uh, So on that one, he just hits the E chord and shifts back to A, which A minor, which is, like I said, the way most people would probably do it. So it's a little less interesting, but it gets us back to the verse quicker. And then that's it. Um, the, the whole structure of the song really focuses on either an A minor or an A major chord. And that's it. So that's uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, one of my favorites. Uh, a classic, even though it wasn't a hit on the radio, it's become a, a classic rock staple and um, covered by a ton of great guitar players over the years because who doesn't want a solo on a song called While My Guitar Gently Weeps? What are your thoughts on the song? Give me a call, 925-494-1739. Join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash kinks and beats, or email me at kinks and beats uh, at herohabit.com. And again, if you'd like to have access to the exclusive content that we are adding every month, including full album reviews and um, more deep analyses into specific aspects of the Kinks and Beatles. Make sure you swing by herohabit.com slash shop and um, contribute $4 a month. All right. I will talk to you guys next time with um, another Kinks song. Have a great day. This podcast is presented by the Hero Habit Podcast Network. Swing by HeroHabit.com today to comment on this episode and poke around our growing database of sports and pop culture news, reviews, and collectibles. HeroHabit.com. Collect your heroes.